This Week at Hope Point. You remember when you first gave your life to Christ? Every corner of your heart you're checking out. Is it wholly given over to the Lord? And you would tremble at the thought of not letting Christ be Lord of every cell in your body. And then through the years you get used to one or two areas of compromise. And you just let it stay there because you've lost your first love. Jesus stands with every believer who honors his truth in a truth-denying culture. He sees our desire to be faithful and values the sacrifices we make. Yet he also knows that if our focus is merely defending truth, our hearts will drift from the joy of daily walking with him. It is possible to do many right things yet miss the best thing, loving Jesus himself. Because nothing is more important than our daily relationship with him, Jesus calls us to examine the direction of our lives and ask, is the greatest person in the universe actually the greatest priority of my life? Let's listen to what Richard has to say to us from Revelation chapter 2. There is an often repeated story of Vince Lombardi after a major Green Bay loss. Sorry about last night. Packers, but Lombardi said it was an inexcusable loss. And so on Monday after the game, he gathered with his team and said, we're men, we're going to go back to the basics. And he held a football high above his head and he said, gentlemen, this is a football. <laughs> when you read the book of Revelation, the letter starts off with seven distinct messages to churches that really represent all of the churches throughout the 21 centuries of the existence of the people of God. But church number one receives a distinct message from Jesus Christ. It's Lombardi-like in the sense that this church had forgotten the basics Revelation 2, 4, and 5, you have forsaken the love that you had at first. Repent and do the things you did at the beginning. Now, it's going to take us a little while to work through the verses that lead up to verse 4. So I hope that your brain can just make a commitment to say, I'm going to listen and listen, and then you'll appreciate the magnitude of that verse even more. If you're not familiar with how the book of Revelation is laid out, Chapter 1 is a great big picture of Christ. There's a reason for that. When you're suffering, you need a big Jesus. But then 2 and 3 are letters to 7 churches, and they all have the same format. I'll go through this quickly because you'll see it every week. Jesus addresses a church in particular, like Spartanburg. Then a reminder. He reminds them of how majestic he is. He can take care of everything. Then he comforts them because he says, hey, I see, I know what's going on in your life. Then he commends them for doing right in an area or two, their strengths. And then he confronts them for an area where they need to grow in. And then he offers them a promise if they will repent. And then he warns them for those who will not repent. So looking at the pattern that's the same in all the churches, let's look at the church of Ephesus and see how the pattern works itself out. So here we're going to see the address of the church and the identity of the sender of the letter. Verse 1, chapter 2, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who hold the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. We saw in chapter 1 that the seven lampstands are just a metaphorically beautiful way of saying the church, seven churches. Seven churches that are designed to shine the light of hope in a dark world. And Jesus is walking among them. 
How the letter begins, a little bit of a mystery to us because he's writing to the angel of that particular church. And we have to ask the question, is he really writing to an angel or is he writing to what the, how the phrase could be translated to the messenger of the church, which would be me and other leaders? Well, I could tell you in Revelation, the word angel, every time it's 67 times it's used in the book, it means angel. Sometimes it's used in the New Testament to refer simply to a messenger. But today I think I'm going to go with angel as it seems to be predominant use in the book. And for you tonight to be reminded that while you're sitting here and you may be listening to me and go, it doesn't feel very thing, big. I do believe that something big is happening today, that an angel of God sent from heaven, sort of holding between earth and heaven, is somewhere in this auditorium listening to what I say, listening to what you sing. And are we being faithful to Jesus Christ who sent that angel from heaven to earth to look after this church and to minister to us in profound ways? The second part of we see in every letter is the affirmation where Jesus affirms actually, you know, his awareness of what the church is going through. He said, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I find great comfort in this verse that Jesus says, hey, I, I, your picture's on my refrigerator. <laughs> I, know what, I know how hard it was for you, Richard, this week to do what you did. I saw every bit of it. And he says the same thing to each one of you, to every suffering believer in this church. Jesus says, I know that you want to love me. I see it in your heart. I know that you're leaning toward wanting to bring honor to my name. I know your deeds and your hard work and your, your perseverance. When Jesus says that he's commending them for their, their good works or their, their deeds, Kalos, good, good deeds. It's important that we understand why he would take the time to say, I see what you're doing in the city and it's, it's important to me. Because at this time in the city of Ephesus, the, uh, the church or the, the city, the culture wasn't listening anymore to the preaching of the gospel. But somebody told me a long time ago that even when culture stops listening, they never stop watching. So they never stop watching what we're doing, even though they may stop listening to what we're saying. So I hope that this church, each of us, would never be guilty when the church, when the culture is watching, that there would be something, you know, that would turn them off because this culture right now is really not interested in being persuaded to follow God. Right now, the, the culture is so hard. It's looking for reasons to look at the church and not follow God. So let us never give culture a reason. They're always watching even when they're, they're not they're not listening. And then he affirms their, their hard work and their perseverance. He'll mention their per perseverance twice in the letter. And I particularly like the, the, the word that the Bible uses for hard work in this particular thing because it refers to more of exhausting work. It refers to more of a soul that's tired. As a matter of fact, the word can be translated to mourn or to cry, kopos. It's really referring to somebody who is at the end of their rope. And so that's what makes the perseverance of the church of Ephesus so precious. 
They were in a city trying to serve Christ in a culture that rejected Christ, and it was exhausting. I'm sure some of you can relate to that. Trying to honor Christ, and nobody at work in your family honors Him, and it can be exhausting to the point of producing a sense of mourning in your heart. One of the ways that... uh, Things were very difficult for the believers in Ephesus was just doing business. When you walked through the city gates in Ephesus, you would soon enter a place called the Agora or the marketplace. That's where all the businessmen bought and sold items. At the entrance to the Agora was this basin made of stone or bronze. It was always burning. And it was expected of you, in order to show honor to Caesar in Rome whom the Roman Empire believed to be Lord of the universe, that you were to take a pinch of incense and place it in the basin. Not a big deal, unless you're a believer. How could you pinch incense and say, Caesar is Lord? So every time you went into the Agora, you knew people were watching you. And maybe nobody would do business with you if they knew that you had disrespected Caesar and chosen Jesus over him. How tempting would be to compromise. What's a little sprinkle? To get some business. How easy that would be to do. At the end of verse 2, he commends them for their perseverance in resisting false teaching. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles, but are not and have found them to be faults. It's amazing how aggressive Satan is in this particular fellowship and in every church to enter it, to become a member, to divide and to create impurity. So much so that they had to test people that said that they wanted to be baptized or they wanted to become members. They had to test them because there were so many false apostles that wanted to come in and destroy the church. They had to test them. Are you for real? Are you legit? And here Jesus says, I know that you cannot tolerate and you do not tolerate wicked people. Now, wicked people in this instance is not just your average, normal, everyday sinner. It's those particular people that have come into the church in order for the purpose of bringing down a church. That's what makes them wicked. They're false prophets. They're liars. And they spread false things among the people to, to disrupt and to, and, and to harm and to, and to divide. And Jesus said, I'm grateful that you don't tolerate that. It's interesting. The world thinks that it's done a real disservice to the church when it says the church in the 21st century has become intolerant. That's a high compliment in the eyes of the Lord. God, what God has made clear in the Bible what he does tolerate and what he does not tolerate, and he never asks his church to tolerate what he does not tolerate. It seems so novel to say that, but intolerance is the church, the world would love it if we were pluralistic and included everything, beliefs and behavior. But Jesus said, You're an exclusive people. You believe this way, you behave in a way that honors my holiness. 
Verse 3, they're commended for their perseverance because of all the trials they've endured. You persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and you've not grown weary. You can't really appreciate that verse until you understand the city in which the church existed, the city of Ephesus. It was a world-class city. 250,000 people, one of the largest cities in the empire. It would be equivalent today to New York or London or Hong Kong. It was a commercial center. It was a port city. All the major cities of the Roman Empire intersected with Ephesus by way of great highways. It had one of the largest libraries in the world, educated, intellectually intimidating people. It had the largest theater around. It could seat 25,000 people where they often performed with boasting, immoral, immoral plays. They had 14 major idols in the city to various Roman gods, but the one that was probably the highest one that was most visible was to the emperor, Domitian. He, He reigned from AD 81 to AD 98, probably at the time when Revelation was written. It was 50 feet tall and was on the highest hill, and it was made of all the different gods that the Roman Empire worshipped, and on top was an a chiseled um, face of Domitian, that he was the God above all gods. So you can understand now maybe why the Revelation starts off with a giant vision of Jesus in chapter 1 to remind John, who used to pastor at Ephesus, I am so much larger than that 50-foot tall Domitian statue. But the most noticeable pagan temple in Ephesus was the temple of Artemis, or the temple of Diana, the goddess of life, the fertility goddess. It was 425 feet long and 225 feet wide. Around the temple were 120 columns, each of them 60 feet tall, holding up a beautiful cedar roof. And here... The fertility or the life goddess Artemis was worshipped most often through festivals that concluded with gross acts of immorality. And here are the believers in that city not participating in the thing that was most important to the 250,000 citizens of, of Ephesus. It was a difficult place to live The temple was also a place of financial transactions. It was basically a bank because everybody that came to worship Artemis would come with some sort of financial offering. Those who owned the temple accumulated so much money that they became a lending agency. If you needed money, you could get your loan at the temple, except if you were a believer because you didn't worship there. So a lot of financial transactions. Once a year in May... Tens of thousands of people by the hour would gather and they would gather at the temple of Artemis and then they would start marching down this um, about a 12 foot wide marble path called the Sacred Way and they would march all the way to the harbor and they would be holding in their hands little miniature terracotta type statues of, of the temple, the goddess Artemis made by the silversmith 
And they would take those statues and they would go down to the harbor and they would dip them in the water as a means of baptizing the goddess herself so that her virginity would be restored so that she could once again for another year give life and blessing to the culture. They, they, that's how much they depended on that belief in that pagan god. That they would prosper again if they baptized their little, their little statues. And when the crowds returned that night, they, they would return in a frenzy, drunken orgy, in order to serve um, the goddess Artemis, you would have to be, a priest would have to be a eunuch, and so men in their drunkenness would often castrate themselves and bring their body parts to the temple so that they may be included as a priest. There was not a place that was more pagan in all of the Roman Empire than where this church lived. As I alluded to a moment ago, the temple made lots of money for lots of people especially the silversmith who made the little idols of Artemis. So you can understand what an, what an uproar, actually an outright citywide riot that the Apostle Paul had produced when he preached there in Acts chapter 19. The Apostle Paul came into this city and declared there was no God but Jesus. He stirred up demonic activity People began to burn their magic books. Two million dollars worth of magic books were destroyed as people began to turn to Christ. And all the silversmiths started losing money as people turned to Jesus. And this was the reaction of the business guys in Acts chapter 19. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way Christ, Christians, a silversmith named Demetrius who made silver shrines of Artemis brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together along with the workers in related trades and said, you know, my friends, we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited and She'll be robbed of her divine majesty. If you haven't figured it out by now in life, money drives everything in our culture. Every cultural movement that is making the headlines now, behind that cultural movement is somebody making money. And the leaders of those movements are persuading the followers of those movements. We care about the direction of the movement when all they care about is what the silversmiths cared about, money from the movement. So it doesn't matter whether the movement is climate or race or health. All you have to do is look at the lifestyles of the leaders of the movements and they are enormously rich because of the movement that they profess to care about. So this is what the culture that the Christians lived in. If you wanted to be accepted by the broader cultural, you had to play by those rules. Whatever the culture identified as supremely important, 
you had to say was supremely important if you wanted to prosper. You can imagine how challenging this was to believers. They lived in a culture where everybody says, you cannot worship God apart from an idol. And Christians said, we have no idols. Everybody in Ephesus said, you cannot worship unless you go to the temple. And Christians said, we have no temple. We worship a God who is spirit and he came from heaven, inhabited a body, died on a cross for our sins, returned to heaven, and he's king over all the idols and gods of the world. And he's king of kings. This was their profession of faith in this, in this city. You can imagine how strange and foolish they looked. They appeared to be disrespectful to the culture. <laughs> they paid dearly for it, persecuted, ostracized. They lost their jobs. They lost potential jobs. You had to be strong to be a Christian in Ephesus. Let's look at one more commendation. This is Jesus to this church, but, I ha but you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. You're not going to find Jesus Christ using the word hate much. I can remember growing up, we don't use the word hate in our house. <laughs> it doesn't come out of the mouth of Christ very much. It does here. Because this is the bottom of the barrel of wickedness. We don't know a lot about the Nicolaitans from Revelation. We will see them again. They are mentioned again at the book with the church of Pergamum. But we can read extra biblical literature and find out a little bit of what they believed. They claim to be highly devoted religious people. But they did not believe that what was done in the body mattered at all because they did not believe the physical body mattered. So they taught that you could love God with your mind and your heart and do what you want with your body. And they were bringing that into the church. Can you see why Jesus Christ now said, I hate their teaching." To teach people, to teach culture that what is done in the body does not matter. To make it a little bit more contemporary, to teach boys and girls, little boys and girls, doesn't matter what they do with their bodies. To teach college students, it doesn't matter what you do with your body. You know, in the Roman Empire for the first three centuries, because of the influence of the Nicolaitans, Romans believed that because the body did not matter, if you had a baby that you did not want, you could just take it to the local landfill and let it die of exposure. It was, there were no laws against that. Because when you live in a culture that says the body does not matter, you have to play that out to the end. The body, even the body of a baby, does not matter. You understand where this goes. <clears throat> We're seeing all of this rise in violence in our society. But when we as a culture have become Nicolaitans that say, 
I can love God with my mind. It does not matter what I do with my body. It does not matter what I do with my gender. It does not matter what I do with my baby. Once you cross that line and say, it does not matter what happens to the body, criminals will pick up on that pretty quickly and say, it doesn't matter also what we do to your body. It's all a package deal. And Jesus said, I hate this teaching because of where it spreads, how it spreads. And he said, you'll hate it too. If you love Jesus, you will hate what he hates. So again, if you were a believer in Ephesus, it was hard. I want you to think about this a moment, what this church was like. They persevered, they resisted false teaching, they did good deeds, they, they hated the, de- the teaching of the Nicolaitans and did not allow it to enter. You would think that a church like this is going to receive nothing but commendation. Like this is church of the year. And Jesus loves us so much to ignore those areas of our life that we've pushed into the back corner. (laughs) Not expecting this at all in this church. Yet I have this against you. You have forsaken the love that you had at first. Well, what was the love like where they had it first? Well, there was an explosion of God in this city. The revival that happened at Ephesus was one of the most beautiful revivals recorded in Scripture. It's recorded in Acts chapter 19 in Ephesus. Verse 17, the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many believed and openly confessed what they had done. The baptistry was full from morning till night. Everybody was confessing, praising. Nobody was ashamed. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their skulls together and burned them publicly. A bonfire for Jesus in the middle of the night. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. That's what happened in the early days. And then Jesus said to them, you've lost your first love. Consider how far you have have fallen. I don't know if anybody can relate to this verse more than a minister can. Spent 35 years of my life writing sermons. And there have been many seasons of my life where I wrote the sermon, but my heart was struggling to love Jesus. Can't tell you how many times in life I fought so hard to do the right thing, but I missed the best thing. I was fighting hard to do the right thing, but I missed the best thing, which was adoring Jesus. These people had become exhausted in their hearts. They had fought so hard to resist false teaching to proclaim the truth, to embrace that which is good, that they were missing possibly this relationship with Jesus. Their lives were so filled with discipline that they had forgotten to delight in God. It's like God had become a habit. We resist because it's our habit. We don't let the Nicolaitans in because it's our habit. 
I floss my teeth every night. Almost. But virtually I do. It's a habit. But it's not a lot of worship when I'm flossing my teeth. As a matter of fact, if I stand too close to the mirror when I'm flossing my teeth, at least say, please clean off the mirror. So habits are not the same as worship. So there's a lot of people, maybe in Ephesus, maybe here. It's Sunday, come to church. It's my habit. And you're good at it. And you're so good at it that you don't realize you've lost your first love of intimacy with with Jesus Christ. He no longer wows you. I was reading this, this week that the primary problem with Gen Z, Generation Z, is nothing wows them. They have everything. Come from good families, money, they've traveled. But there's nothing that stuns them. Nothing stuns them. This is sort of what was happening in Ephesus. They were no longer stunned that God, Almighty Creator of a million galaxies, had taken on the skin of man and died on a cross. They lost the wow factor of Jesus. You know, we live in a culture where everybody's looking for purpose. It's amazing. Everybody is trying to find the purpose. I'm going to stand for this thing. And it's amazing. You're seeing more commitment than ever to various causes. You know what they're searching? Because they're, they're searching for something to wow them. They don't have purpose in life. Nothing wows them to say, if I stand for this thing, this cultural movement, I will feel this sense of wow. But they're not. Only God wows. Only when you look at the star maker and the digger of the Grand Canyon and the supplier of all water and food and salvation through the blood of Christ, you become wild. How about you? Have you lost your first love? You remember what it was like when you first knew the Lord? You could not wait to open your Bible and to read something about Jesus. You could not wait to gather with the saints. It was never a chore to come. Listen to biblical teaching. But now there's so many distractions that compete with that. That something might actually be better than being here. You remember when you first gave your life to Christ? Every corner of your heart, you're checking out. Is it wholly given over to the Lord? And you would tremble at the thought of not letting Christ be Lord of every cell in your body. And then through the years, you get used to one or two areas of compromise. And you just let it stay there because you've lost your first love. So what's the remedy for our lives when we lose our first love? Jesus tells us, repent and do the things you did at first. You know, there's a, there's a big difference between, you know, being married for 50 years and being in love for 50 years. And the people who are in love for 50 years still date a lot. Do the things you did at first. 
That's what I tell every couple that I counsel in premarital stuff is if you want to just keep it fresh. If you thought dating was cool, it's always cool. But repent and do the things you did at first. Open your Bible and marvel that there is a God who loves you. A God who has chosen you and brought you into his kingdom. And then outright repent. What does that mean? Well, it means what it always means. Repent always means to change your mind and to change your will and to change your direction. Please hear that. That's what it means to repent. To change your mind, to change your will, and to change your direction. So no matter how good you feel about your relationship with God, if you're walking in a wrong direction, you haven't repented. And maybe because you haven't repented, and maybe you either have lost your first love or you don't belong to Christ at all. What did Jesus tell them? If you do not repent, if you do not, do not change your mind, your will, and your direction, I'll come to you and I'll remove your lampstand from its place. This is pretty understandable. A lampstand was light. And these, Jesus was saying, listen, if you just continue in this exhaustion of doing things by habit and resisting out of duty, but you're not enjoying me and loving me and being wowed by me, it's just not a sustainable life and the fire is going to go out and you're not going to have a witness in the city and the people are going to be living in darkness and you're going to shut the closets of your doctrinal beliefs and you're going to be living in darkness. And you're going, to, you're going to lose your lampstand. You're going to lose your light. You're going to lose your witness. And all you're going to have is the things you stand for, but not a Jesus you stand with. You can hate all the evil in the world and still have no love for God. If you're not daily looking to Jesus, it's possible that you you will end up loving beliefs more than people. If you're not daily looking to Jesus, it's possible that you'll love your beliefs more than people. Maybe this, what had, this is what was occurring in the church of Ephesus. It's not that they didn't love Jesus at all, but maybe their desire to honor him had actually excluded him in the big stands they took. And we're called to guard the truth and share the truth. And unless we remember the mercy of Jesus that saved us. We will view truth as a trophy to be protected instead of medicine to be dispensed. We're called to protect the church from impurity while going into the world and loving impure people. Guard the truth, share the truth. Both. So what God did, for God so loved the world, he sent his son into a world that didn't love him. And he never stopped loving. He loved the Father perfectly, loved people perfectly. Jesus always had a first love for the Father and for people. How about you? Have you lost your first love? Well, open your Bible. 
Have you, have you lost a first love for people? Open your Bible and marvel at how much God loves you. And then I had a friend of mine write me less than two weeks ago and said, listen, I'm stuck in the next four days with somebody in my life. I have to be around them, family type thing. I don't really enjoy them. They're arrogant, no interest in God. You have any advice for me how I'm going to survive these four days? That's what I wrote him. Texted him back. I said, let their lostness increase your praise to God that he has chosen you, adopted you, and opened your eyes to the glory of God in the face of Christ because had he not done that, you like them would have blindly and arrogantly walked off a cliff to your own destruction. Praise God of what he's done for you. And secondly, ask God, would you help me see this irritating person? Would you help them? Would you help me see them through your eyes? And I asked them, I said, I'm not being sarcastic with you. I said, but if you ask God to help you see that person through his eyes, do you think God is filled with fury and rage and anger? Or do you think he loves them? Pray that you'd see people through God's eyes. So Jesus says, if you don't change your mind, your will, and your direction about all of this, I'm going to I'm going to remove the I'm going to remove your light you'll not have a witness in the city and among the nations. But then he says there's a promise for those who do repent. This is how the letter ends. To the one who's victorious I will give the right to eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Now this promise to the one who is victorious you're going to find this same promise said to every single one of the seven churches, they all end the same way. To the one who's victorious, to the one who's triumphant, or to the one who overcomes. Who overcomes what? Who overcomes all of this this persuasion in your body to compromise and leave that area alone that God is speaking to you about. To the one who overcomes that area. To the one who stays in the fight. The world's going to tell you to compromise. You've got to fight against that. The world's going to tell you, indulge your flesh. Fight against that. The world's going to tell you to live for comfort. Fight against that. The world's going to tell you to hide your faith. Silence your belief. Hide, fight against that. That's what it means to be victorious. You're fighting against the things that your heart is persuading you to compromise on. And what happens to the person who overcomes, stays in the fight? says they have the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. You know about the tree of life. There was one in Genesis chapter 3, right? Adam and Eve had access to the tree of life, and they gave it away. They chose sin over eating from the tree that God provided that would have satisfied their souls. They were excluded from the garden. Nobody's eaten from that tree for 6,000 years. There's another one. It's found in Revelation chapter 22. The Bible says that there's a river in the city of God. And lining the rivers, the tree of life. And the leaves on that tree are for the healing of the nations. 
For the satisfying of all the desires of every man, woman, and child on the face of the earth is on that tree. I mean, right now we have eternal life in us and we praise God for that, but we are planted in pretty poor soil. And so we're not, we don't enjoy the full benefits of eternal life. But one day we're going to be planted in perfect soil. And we're really going to enjoy eternal life. And it's interesting how John says this. Or how Jesus says this to John. And they're going to eat that from that tree in the paradise of God. Why does he say that? Because around every Roman emperor's palace, there was a garden that surrounded his palace. And it was called the Paradiso, the paradise. And only the elite people of the city, of the county, of the district, only the elite people in the Roman Empire were allowed to come and be invited to eat with the Caesar in his Paradiso. And Jesus Christ says, there's a tree in heaven called the tree of life. And the only reason that it exists in heaven is because I hung on a cross called the tree of death. Jesus hung on a tree of death that in heaven he might give you the tree of life. And if you will overcome, you will not enter the paradiso of Caesar. You will enter the paradise of God. And when you arrive there from the tree of the healing for the nations, I, Jesus Christ, will personally give you fruit from that tree. And you will eat and you will be satisfied forever. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from Hope Point Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. If you would like to learn more about us or give to this ministry, please go to our website at hopepoint.org. We hope you can join us again next week.